episode 127 of the Cinefessions podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts. My name's Brandon Shawin, and joining me tonight are my two other co-hosts. We have Mark Nadeau and Ash Collins. Mark, how's everything this evening? Good. Busy day today. Been up early. Then we had an ice storm to deal with. So, uh, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Doing this podcast, and then I'm going to bed. Absolutely. And how about you, Ash? How's everything going for you? Uh, I'm just remembering that we haven't filed our city taxes. So, other than that, okay. <laughs> oh, man. What a time to remember. <laughs> well, at least they're due tomorrow. So, there's that. Oh, well, hey, there you go. Exactly. All right. So tonight is the first of six episodes in our brand new Complete Psycho arc. And we are reviewing the original film of this series, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960. Before we do that, though, let's talk about how you can find us on social media. You can reach us at Cinefessions on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. You can email us at contact at Cinefessions.com. And you can also leave us a voicemail if you want to be part of an upcoming show at 1-302-448-TALK. That's 1-302-448-8255. You can also check out our long list of past reviews and all 127 podcast episodes right on over at cinefashions.com. And also, if you're a fan of the show, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a review on iTunes. So those iTunes reviews help us grow. And so we appreciate you leaving a review for us on iTunes. And also, if you like what you're hearing here every week, please tell your friends about us. The more people that know about us, the more people that can tune in every week and the larger audience we can uh, muster. So anything you can do to help spread the word about Cinefessions, we really appreciate. All right, let's dive right in. Ash, what has been going on in your world this past, well, I would say week, but it's really only been just a few days since we last recorded. So... <laughs> What's been going on in your life these past few days? Um, let's see. Um, pretty much the only thing I did other than work and laundry was uh, watched most of the uh, new Lost in Space series that's on Netflix. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Mark and I were just talking about that. How you, How are you liking it? My wife hates it. I'm enjoying it. So... <laughs> Good. Um, good. 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 Yeah, it, I'm like all I'm all the way up to the like the last two episodes, I think. So okay, yeah. how many episodes is that? Ten. One? Okay, not too bad. Yeah, I definitely want to check it out. It looks really good from the from the little preview bit I saw of it when I turned on Netflix. Yeah. So I'm definitely gonna check it out eventually. Yeah, the effects work is is amazing. Uh, visually, it's really well done. Um, the only complaint I have is the it feels a little bloated. Not like insanely bloated, just like they could have trimmed an episode, you know, the episodes maybe like by 10 minutes and they probably would have mm -hmm. flowed a little better. I mean, I'm not I'm not like, oh, God, this is terrible. It's just kind of, you know, just, a, eh, you know, you guys could have trimmed just a little bit and it would have flowed a little better. But um, gotcha. but uh, I actually saw someone refer to it as Netflix bloat. <laughs> uh, but uh, other than that, I think it's pretty good. It's. It's definitely going for the adventure series feel that the original series in the 60s had. Um, okay. So uh, it's a little bit more family friendly, I think, than than most. So, but yeah, I know I'm, I'm enjoying it. Awesome. Good, good, good. So that's anything else for you from this week? No, that's it. Perfect. Yeah, myself, it's it's going to be pretty anemic this week for all of us, I think. But um, for myself, I continued watching... Um, 
a couple of the 1997 WCW pay-per-views. Um, and just honestly, not a single one of them has really been worth watching. I, I honestly don't think I'm going to continue through watching WCW once I finish up the 1997 block of pay-per-views because it's just, it's not very interesting. Um, what I find like noticeably different between the WWF pay-per-views from 97 and the WCW ones are that the WWF events actually show some hype packages before the matches. So even if you don't watch all the weekly programming leading up to the event, like I'm doing, you can still get a, or like I'm not doing rather, you can still get a, a pretty solid idea of what the hell is going on. WCW productions, it's literally just like match commentator, match commentator, match commentator. And that's pretty much the entire thing. Like there's no hype packages really, except for like the very beginning. Um, and so if you aren't watching week to week, you just, you don't really get a feel of everything just feels disconnected. And so I didn't feel that way when I was watching WWF shows. So I think I'm just going to finish this year up and then go to WWF for 98 and probably just plow through the rest of 98 through the, uh, WWF through the end of the attitude era, just cause that's, I was always more of a WWF guy, a WWE guy back then anyway. So I feel like that's kind of just coming through at this point. Like I really liked NWO when it first started and I loved Sting, but I was always mainly watching WWE and I'd flip back to WCW back when that was still a thing. Um, and so I think I just, I still have that kind of feeling today. But um, for those keeping, so I watched Great American Bash, Fall Brawl and Halloween Havoc from 97 and all of them received a C, C minus and C plus grade from me. So just as average as you could uh, you could imagine. Um, other than that, I I did watch um, a non-podcast film this week. So there's that, and I'm excited to talk about it. Um, Bridge and I are trying to catch up on the films that we missed heading up to the new Avengers film from the MCU. Um, and we were checking it out, and the first one that we hadn't seen was Ant-Man, which was the last Phase 2 film we needed to watch. Um, and with this one, you know, I'd heard a lot of mixed things about it, and so I honestly wasn't that excited to watch it, but I know, Ash, you, you enjoyed it. Um, I can't remember, Mark, I can't remember your thoughts on this one. Did you on like Ant-Man? I yeah. did. I liked it a lot, okay. actually. I thought it was quite funny, okay. and uh, I just like how Marvel is, you know, making different type of spirit movies this one being a heist film which i like a lot so yeah i was a big fan excited for the sequel uh and men and the wasp coming out later on this year yeah, yeah. um but oh sorry go ahead ash no i i enjoyed it i just i don't know it no i i didn't hate it or anything it just it was just kind of eh, i gave i gave it a like a middling thumbs in the middle type of thing yeah gotcha um I decided to watch it, though, just because it's the last one we need to watch from Phase 2. And I love Paul Rudd, so I figured it couldn't be that mm-hmm. bad. Um, and, and it wasn't bad by any stretch. In fact, I enjoyed it. But I will say that it's likely at the bottom of the Marvel Cinematic Universe for me. Maybe fighting it out with, like, Thor, the original Thor, and Captain America, the first Avenger, as my least favorite in the group. I, but that said, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I still – I haven't given any Marvel Cinematic Universe film less than three stars. And Ant-Man follows suit. You know, I'd give that one three stars as well. But this one just felt lacking compared to uh, most of the others. I found the story pretty weak, to be honest. Um, the way that, like, Paul Rudd's character is brought into this whole superhero world is... It, it just it took a hell of a lot of suspension of disbelief in order for me to buy into it. And it just felt... It felt random, for lack of a better word. Um and then on top of that, like the big bad in this one is is one dimensional as you can get. And the final battle, it's it's okay. 
it's nothing really to write home about though. But still, really, I yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. I thought it was pretty cool with the whole train set and then, you yeah. know, getting small, getting big in the girl's, the, you know, in the daughter's uh, room. And room, yeah. I don't know. I, I liked it. It was it was all right. But um, I, I love Paul Rudd. I think he does an excellent job here alongside Evangeline Lilly, who I have been in love with from back during her Lost days because she's amazing. Um, and then Michael Douglas, I think, is really good here, too. Um, but honestly, I'm I'm way more excited to see the next one, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Because I really think they'll just be able to do a lot more with it than they could with this origin story. So, well, and that was that was my biggest. I didn't think it was issue great, but... with it too. Was yeah, let's get a thief and have to train him when my daughter already knows how to do everything involved with the suit and is a better fighter than this dude anyway. That was right. That was probably my biggest bitch about the movie. But I mean, other than but that, the thing no, is, I he lost his do. he lost his wife to this suit. He doesn't lose his right. daughter as well. Yeah, well. Right. I... There is that, but then at the same time, it's like, yeah, we're going to give this guy who's got a daughter, you know, a chance to be completely expendable. So, yeah. I, and he makes mention of that. Like, he, he, that's why I'm here, because I'm expendable. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So, I, it, yeah, it, it, it was definitely lacking to me. So I, I'm, I'm kind of in Ash's camp a little bit more here on this one. Um, but again, I enjoyed it. I still give it three stars. It's still a good movie. Um, and I think even though it wasn't great, if, in, if Michael Pena didn't make me laugh so damn much along with Paul Rudd. I probably wouldn't have given it three stars, but they did. So he did. So I ended up, I ended up enjoying it because I thought Michael Pena's character was just fucking hilarious. I'm just trying to look right now to see what I gave it on Letterboxd. Yeah. And it's possible that I didn't read it on Letterboxd because I hadn't used it yet. Um, oh, okay. Let me see here. Yeah. This was from 2015, which yeah. blew my mind. I didn't realize I, it was that old. I gave it four and a half stars out of five. Oh wow! Yeah, I I loved generous. it. I thought it was lots of fun. Good. Right. I'm 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 AFKing for a second while you guys are going over your stuff. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. <laughs> AFKing. Um, it's the nerd's term for away from keyboard. Oh, for Christ's sake! <laughs> oh, I was I was going I uh, away for offended. fucking Christ's sake. Yeah, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just go TIS. Oh. You know, I'm taking a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So the next two that we have to watch before Avengers are uh, Doctor Strange, which will be next, and then Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Okay. Uh, so we got to watch those two next, which Guardian 2 is on Netflix, and we own Doctor Strange. So that'll be watching next. And obviously, we need to see Black Panther also, but that's mm-hmm. not going to be on home video before Avengers comes out. So we're just going to watch that one after the fact. But that release should be out soon, though. You know, it may be, yeah, but I'm sure it's because Avengers is like two weeks away or something. Yeah, it's on the 27th. It's too bad they bumped it up so right. that, you know, we don't get like, it'd be like, awesome if they had like the Black Panther Blu-ray release and then the following week it's, yeah. uh, you know, exactly. Avengers 3, but well, whatever. Like that'd be a smart money maker for him too. But. Well, no matter what, it's going to sell like a motherfucker, apparently. Exactly. So Black Panther had broken uh, sale records on pre-sale uh, tickets. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Avengers three beats Black Panther and the six other films prior to it ahead of time already. No, so shit. they've sold more pre-sale tickets than the last seven Marvel films combined. That's fucking insane. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, They're just printing money at this point. It's kind of disgusting, yeah. but the thing is, you know what? They're gonna lose their audience if they create a subpar product. You know, right. and so far, minus a few blips, they really haven't. You know, like myself, I'm not a big Thor two fan. Um, I yeah, don't think really Cap either. one really holds up anymore. No, nope. um, 
But apart from that, I can't recall watching a Marvel Cinematic Universe film and leaving unfulfilled. I've always yeah. left with a happy smile on my face and I can't wait to watch it again attitude. Yeah, no, I'm 100% with you. Um, absolutely. Even the ones I, and like you're saying, even the ones I didn't love, Thor, The Dark World, which I thought, I liked Thor, The Dark World a lot better than Thor. Um, but even okay. Thor, I enjoyed the first time around. I just didn't love it. And Captain America, First Avenger, didn't love it the first time around. Um, I think we, so before, like the weekend before the the first Avengers came out, yeah, um, it's when I was in grad school. So my buddies and I had a marathon at my house. We watched all five of the, or four, whatever, whatever, four or five, five, right? Movies leading up to Avengers, whatever the hell it was. Okay, yeah. In, in one day. And um, even at that point, I think the weakest for me was um, the, uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. I don't know what it is about that one. It just doesn't do it for me. Well, but. I just think we've been wowed so much since that you go back to it. I, you know what? It's the Red Skull. He looks weird exactly. to me. I don't like, yeah. And it's Hugo Weaving, so I mean, we should love him. Yeah, but. and and I think I don't like the film as much knowing that Hugo Weaving refused to come back to play the Red Skull again. So in oh, a way, I'm kind of like, I didn't realize that was the case. That's why he's never come back is because hmm. Weaving has no interest in redoing the character again. Oh, okay. Now, the, his stance might have changed since then because it's made right. too much money. Right. Uh, but best of my knowledge, he still refuses. So to me, I'm, it kind of sucks because like the character could come back, mm-hmm. you know, and right. be a force to be reckoned with where, you know, he needs all the Avengers to stop him this time. Yeah. Um, it, it's really too bad. And, but they could always recast him too. It's a fucking yeah, exactly. red, uh, red skull. You know, we don't have to see Hugo weaving right. in, in the skull. So you know, damn long. Like, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it wouldn't be a big deal to recast I, at all. But exactly. One of my plans, like I really want to watch through. I don't. I just had this craving to watch through the Dark Knight trilogy. Okay. Again, and so I'm not sure if we'll do that this weekend, next weekend. I don't know, but I'm gonna see if my inter- my sister's interested too, and just have a have a marathon day where we watch through all three of them because I've been really wanting to watch those again. Uh, I've not seen the last one with Bane. S- yeah, for a very long time. Oh, like I okay. saw it in theaters. Yeah, I saw it like in theaters the night before the the shooting happened, and then I didn't yeah. go to the theater for a significant amount of time after that. Not and it was like not by. I was scared to go. Just like I, something happened where like I just didn't go. Maybe it was like, like subconscious. I don't know. Yeah. But like that was the last movie I watched in theaters for like maybe four or five months after that. Okay. Um, but anyway, that was completely just a tangent. But after that, uh, I did watch it. I think I watched it once when it came out on home video, but I can't remember because I own like the, the trilogy set. Yeah. And I just, I, I want to watch it again. So that's, well, that's something I'll probably dive into. You should soon. buy them in 4K if you have, uh, if you can find them on sale because they're yeah. all out in 4K now. That would be awesome. The only thing oh, I about yeah. that is like my my the 4K. That, that would be great, and I would love to watch them in 4K. I wouldn't be able to do a marathon in 4K because our 4K is in the bedroom, and so like we're not having you know oh, people come over you, and watch. You it can from do there, a marathon, but. my friend. <laughs> you could do a marathon. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, so so that was my week. How about how about you, Mark? Uh, well, yeah, um, I didn't watch too, too much just because I had to do homework for tonight's uh, recording. Yeah. Um, but I did get a chance to do a few things. Um, so I finished a Castlevania series again. Okay. It was only four episodes. So it really didn't take that long. Um, I really liked it, but what I didn't like is that it's only four episodes. So this, the season one ends at a really odd spot in the story. Oh, um, okay. It could have used 
another two to four episodes more to make it more of a complete season. Mm -hmm. So I don't really feel like this is even a season. It feels like it's a prequel or a a, a prelude to a full season. Mm -hmm. Um, My friend Matt on uh, Facebook, who does the Big Kev Geek Stuff podcast, he put down that uh, they have uh, an order for, I think, another eight episodes for season two. Um, okay. I could be wrong on a number of episodes, but that to me, you can create a greater story, especially since the episodes are only 25 minutes long. That's not a lot, you know? Um, so again, I liked season one, but it left me wanting a lot more because it just ends and I'm like, that's it. Now I got to wait. So, but right. more episodes come are coming out this year. So that's that. And uh, before I go back into Peaky Blinders Season 3, I wanted to try another show on Netflix. So I scrolled all the way to the right uh, to see what is not showing up right off the bat on my list because it's quite populist, you know, and there's a lot of things on it. Yeah. Um, so I watched uh, Hotel Beau Sejour. Okay. It's a, I believe it's a German production from 20, uh, 2016. And I've only seen the first episode, and it's about this girl who wakes up in this renovated hotel, and uh, she goes to the bathroom, and her dead body's in there. So, <laughs> we get the feeling that she's been murdered, and she's stuck in some type of limbo, and she's trying to figure out what's happened to her. Huh. Yeah, so so she can go home, go see her parents, but they can't see her type of thing. But for some reason, like her alcoholic real dad, because her mom remarried, her alcoholic dad can see her and one of her friends can see her as well. But there's no explanation to why. Again, only one episode in, there's 10 episodes and there's only one season. Um, so I'm not sure if there's a second season coming. I don't see anything on uh, IMDb. But uh, so far, so good. So another show with subtitles. Um Bring it on. I'm, I just fucking, I know I keep saying this, but I just love how Netflix is bringing these shows from around the world because i would have never watched this you know at all i would never i would have never downloaded this show if you know i was downloading tv uh but because netflix uh is uh you know they bought the rights to it and they're promoting it um i read the synopsis and i liked it and uh even look at imdb score of 7.9 out of 10 that's pretty Hmm. high for a tv series so hopefully uh What's the it's title called, of this one? It's called Hotel Beau Séjour, which oh. uh, I guess it means, uh, I guess the original title is just Beau Séjour, and um, it's like a go- have a good stay, so like Hotel Good Stay, but oh, okay. uh, it's uh, it's German, at least I think it's German, I'm going to scroll down here, uh, actually it's, uh, it's Dutch, uh, oh, it's okay. from Belgium, so uh, they speak Dutch, not uh, German. So my bad on that, but uh, really cool. It's on Netflix. At least it's on Netflix Canada. I'm assuming yeah, it's it on is. yours as well. It is. So yeah. check it out. Um, I did uh, watch another Kino Lorber film that I'll okay. have actually that posted on Wednesday, which is the 18th, which will be after this uh, podcast uh, is uh, is out. So yeah, I want to talk going up to the 23rd. Yeah, yeah, we're we're recording this so we can advance here. So um, I watched Gorky Park from 1983. It's oh, a, I've, I've always wanted to see that one. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a mystery. It's a crime mystery uh, based out of Moscow, where um, William Hurt plays a, a local police officer who has to uh, solve three murders 
where the victims have no faces. Um, okay. Yeah, Brian Dennehy's in it. Lee Marvin's in it. Um, Joanna Pakula's in it. Uh, it's actually, it's okay. I was a little confused at the end because I assumed something and I was completely out to lunch. So oh, I'm not okay. sure it's due to uh, me having to pause and do something else and come back to it or or whatnot. Um, but it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd give it a middle of the road, maybe like a, you know, two and a half out of four stars. Okay. But uh, I haven't written my review yet. So I'm going to do that tomorrow at work uh, if it's not too busy. And yeah. uh, that should be posted on our Instagram on Wednesday, the Excellent. 18th, which is in the past. But currently, right now, in the future. <laughs> I always thought the cover art for that was very striking. And that's why I always wanted to see it. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I bought it because, well, one, it's Kino Lorber and I'm a fucking sucker. Uh, two, it's William Hurt and Lee Marvin. <laughs> and it's based in Russia, in Moscow during the Cold War. So, uh, yeah, sounds awesome. So yeah, I definitely. picked it up. Yeah. Now, my big uh, thing this, uh, I guess, this last few days here, I uh, went to the movies on Friday. Oh, and okay. because I've got the Cinemia uh, movie pass, right. so it's already like at the time it was already the 10th of the month and I have to watch three movies. And right now there's a plethora of films that I want to see. You know, we've got the Rampage that came out last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Riddle Player One I still haven't seen yet. Um, I want to see Truth or Dare because it's fucking Bloomhouse. And even though it looks cheesy as fuck, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy myself. Yeah. Um, but I decided because I went to a Friday matinee and I heard... That you'd rather see this film in silence. So I went to see A Quiet Place. Oh, okay. That's directed by John Krasinski and stars him and his wife, Emily Blunt. Holy shit, it was fantastic. Um, I don't want to ruin anything. So Mm -hmm. honestly, I'm not going to talk too much about it. But that's the film where you have to stay quiet. um, Because... There's practically no soundtrack in this movie. There's very few words actually said. Hmm. But, you know, it's like a 90-minute film, almost two hours, 90 minutes. It's uh, 90 minutes. And uh, I was tense the whole time. Like, it was fucking awesome. Um, you know what it, I feel like it might remind – I haven't seen it, obviously. But yeah. did it give you kind of any um, – did it make you feel like you are watching um, Don't Breathe at all? Uh that same kind of tension? No, because in Don't Breathe, I was giddy. And this one, okay. I, it, it's more of a gripping, like, holy okay. fuck, you know? Gotcha. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. So, I don't, again, I don't, I don't want to divulge anything. I think you should, right. don't see the trailer because apparently the most recent trailer uh, has huge spoilers in it. So oh, good. I haven't why seen Why do people do that? I don't know. Hmm. Um, but the film itself was fantastic. I highly recommend it. I'm looking at IMDb. It's got an 8.1 out of 10 for a horror movie, you know? That's awesome. And prior to me watching the film, I was kind of avoiding uh, discussions on Twitter about it. Mm-hmm. But I guess there's this thing going on where people are saying that this is not a horror movie. It's a uh, it's a independent artistic horror drama. Or they're trying to spin it so that people think it's not it's more highbrow than it is you know mm-hmm. a lot of people look down on horror um but to me this is like this year's get out that's how good this film is yeah um so again i highly recommend it it is a horror movie it will it might scare you i was not scared but i held my breath a few times 
I mean, I, I wasn't scared, but, yeah. but well, somebody yeah, I, might be. You know what? It's normal to pee your pants in the public. Like, come right, on. It's, it's normal. But you know what, though? I was actually – I was eating smart – or M&Ms. I bought a bag of M&Ms because yeah. I had breakfast. <laughs> so yeah. so my breakfast that morning after hitting the gym was a, a Coke Zero and a thing of Smarties. There you go. Uh, or M&Ms. M&Ms, And yeah. uh, I felt so guilty chewing M&Ms during the quiet scene <laughs> that I would wait for like a musical cue and then just down a whole bunch at a time, you know? That's hilarious. Um, yeah, but yeah, uh, totally worth it. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. Like, I gave it five stars on the nice. letterbox. Like, I can't wait to watch this again at home. I know I won't feel the same way I did the first time mm-hmm. because that's, you know, I know what happens. But yeah, still fucking good. Time. Yeah. The, yeah, I want to chase a dragon again. So if somebody wants <laughs> to confess me and I'll forget things, awesome. Right. Um, Sounds but, good. Yeah, and... uh that's all for me. Oh, no, that's not all for me. Uh, video game wise, I did fuck all, but I did buy because of the PlayStation flash sale. And oh, okay. I just need more games on my pile of to play because yeah, I'm a fucking rube. Um, <laughs> I played, uh, or I bought Carmageddon and Maximum Damage, I think it's called. Oh, yeah. Which is the pretty much a remake of the old Carmageddon, uh, computer game that was kickstarted, uh, yeah. a while back. And, uh, what'd you oh, think of that? It's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> it plays like a computer game from 2001. Yeah, um, well. It's, it's or not even 2001. This is from late 90s, I think. Okay. Um, which I liked it back then, but uh, today with the PS4 controller, uh, maybe it's because my car isn't upgraded, but it was uh, floaty as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, not that much fun. Will I still play it? Yes, because I think I could get some good out of it. But from what I've played so far... It's pretty shitty. It's a 13 gig file and it takes easily 90 seconds for a level to load. Burnout Paradise wow. is quick as fuck, has all the DLC and is only seven gigs. Hmm. This is twice as big and three times as slow. So I'll keep playing it for now. <laughs> Again, it only cost me $7 Canadian. I think it's $4.99 US. On okay. the PlayStation American store, as per a Twitter uh, tweet I saw. Yeah. Uh, but I'm like, you know, it's it's seven bucks. What's What am I going to lose, you know, with seven dollars? Um, mm-hmm. Only my time, I suppose. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah. And so seven dollars. Yeah, about seven dollars. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's all for me this week. Awesome. Good. Well, yeah. that's, a, that's a good good few days there. So, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. So, let's jump over to our review for the week so we are talking of course about psycho so as always there will be spoilers for psycho um and uh just because i'm in the rare instance where i've actually read the novel that is based on so i do a hell of a lot and it's probably gonna get annoying and i apologize but i do a hell of a lot of comparing to the novel as we're going through just kind of to point it out, I guess. So that's cool. There's spoilers for the novel. Obviously, I'll tell you right now, if you've seen the movie, you've basically read the novel. Like, it's the same story. There's just some small differences that I point out. So just keep that in mind. If that matters to you, there will be spoilers for for that, um, which, again, I'm not spoiling anything when I talk about the novel if you've already seen the film. So this film was ha- saw an original U.S. theatrical release of September 8th, 1960. And actually, funny enough, it actually had its premiere, I believe it was a California premiere, two days before our previously oldest film we've ever reviewed on the podcast, whichever the first film was for the um, the Portman Co-Cycle. Yeah, I can't remember what what was the first First film. But it was from 1960. Anyway, it came out two days later. So technically, even though this didn't see wide release until September, this premiered 
uh, earlier than that. So this is technically the oldest film that we reviewed on the podcast. And notably, which I actually wrote down in my first thing, uh, first note, I was like, holy shit, I think this is the first black and white film we reviewed on the podcast. Uh, didn't we? No, it wasn't a Corman Poe film on black and white. Was I'm it? I, I pretty sure it was. I think it was. Oh, you know what? One of them was, wasn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. At least one of them was. Yeah, that weird one that went to the head. Yes, I can't remember which one, I guess. Uh, I think no, right. wasn't the tomb of Ligeria or Ligeria uh, Ligi- Ligia? in black and white? Yeah. Ligia? It could have been. Pretty sure. And uh, the first film that we watched was uh, House of Usher. Yes, that one came out two days after this one premiered. That one premiered two days after this one premiered. So. Oh, very nice. Yeah. All right. So this one, of course, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, our first Hitchcock film, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was written by Joseph Stefano, based on the novel by Robert Block. It has an IMDb score of 8.5 out of the 492,400 and... Oh, no. Jeez, oh, Pete. I wrote this down yesterday and there was 406, 492, 406. Today, there's 492,677 views or votes on IMDb. And this actually ranks number 33 on IMDb's top top movies, so top 250 movies list. So that's pretty cool. Um, it has a Metacritic score of 97, a tomato meter score of 97% with an audience score on Rotten Tomatoes of 94%. It currently holds a 4.36 out of 5 stars on Letterboxd based on 61,234 ratings. And it had a budget of... $807,000. It was, I think they said like the first film or one of, since at least he started making bigger films of Hitchcock's that was under a million dollars. And um, it was self-financed. Self-financed, yep. And they mm-hmm. used the, uh, his, Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV crew actually filmed the movie to help keep costs down. Yeah. Very interesting stuff on this one. So much trivia just because it's such a famous movie. But, mm-hmm. um, and it saw a worldwide gross of 50, about $50 million. So, and it clocks in at 109 minutes. I think we talked about this previously, but just remind us. 49. Ash, uh, 109 minutes. I said hour and nine. It's, it's supposed to be Oh, I'm sorry. And, and I'm looking 149. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, no, that's fine. Uh, Ash, what is your history with Psycho? Um, uh, this was like one of those ones I saw when I was a kid. Um, scared the crap out of me. I don't remember how old I was when I saw it. It was on TV. Okay. Um, but yeah, the yeah, it's been a long time since I last saw this one before this. Okay, so. awesome. And what about you, Mark? What's your I'm, history with Psycho? I'm embarrassed to say it was my first time watch. I'm so excited to hear that. <laughs> yeah, That's first awesome. time. Very good. Yeah, I've seen Psycho um, a multitude of times. I want to say probably three or four times. Um, and yeah, I've always, always loved this film. So I was really excited to dive back into it. All right, so the uh, right from the get-go here, we have the these opening credits, and I think this would probably be a good time to mention that if you didn't start watching this film at the opening score here, at the opening credits, then you were not admitted into the film, which I'm sure this is something people already know just from, you know, knowing things about this film, but Hitchcock uh, was very strict on not allowing theaters to let people show up to this film late. So if you weren't there from the beginning, you had to wait till the next showing. Like he made sure that theaters were turning people away. And from what I saw, it looked like theater managers were actually abiding by that. 
Um, and there was a whole marketing campaign around the fact that you need to be there from the beginning or you don't get to see this film. Yeah, because so, if you show up late, you're yep. upsetting the other movie goers. Right. You know? <laughs> well, you are. Yes, this is it's true. It's like the movie started and now I got a guy in front of me who has to stand up <laughs> let somebody pass. Go fuck yourself. Be on time. Here's, exactly. Here's, here's an interesting tidbit for you. Uh, you, you said the budget was about $800,000 in 1960s money, and it made $50 yep. million at the box office. Adjusted for inflation, that is $592.6 million in 2017 money. Whew. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of money. That is. That's crazy. Because I actually I have, a, I have a stat for that later, um, because obviously the, the secretary, uh, Marion, takes $40,000. Yeah, I Googled the shit of that, too. <laughs> yeah, so that's about $336,000 today. So Okay. Yeah, just so we have a, a kind of understanding of how much cash was waved around her face. So, well, yeah. Still being in the title sequence, mm-hmm. I was – I got pissed off. Or I was I was perturbed, I should say. Okay. Just because, like, I'm hearing this the the psycho theme, you know, yeah. not the shower scene theme, but the actual, right. like, you know, psycho theme. I'm like, the fuck is this? This is the reanimator theme. <laughs> I was, I, I and plus, I texted you guys that, and they get a fucking response. Oh I, yeah, you know what? Charles Band is such a ripoff artist. Yeah. Like, I grew up with Full Moon films, so there's a place in my heart for Full Moon. Right. But the guy is a ripoff artist and that's he's so fucking scummy. Because I'm like, <laughs> this is fucking reanimator. Oh, no, man. no, no. This is psycho. Oh. Yeah. Uh you know, I, that actually blew me away. I had no idea. And and the reason I didn't respond was because I was I meant to look it up because I've I saw re, I've seen Reanimator once. Okay. And I absolutely loved it. Like I you know, it's fucking amazing film. Four stars, absolutely fell in love with it. Or I think it was during one of my Cinefession summer streams and it like ended up on the top of my list for that year. But okay. it's been four years, three, four years since I've seen it. So I just didn't remember that theme. So I meant uh-huh. to look it up, but I just never got around to it. And then I honestly I just forgot. So that's the only reason I, I didn't text back, so I apologize. But that's, uh, that's okay. yes. Yes. Um I I, I couldn't believe much it. Him. Like I just couldn't believe it, but it doesn't <laughs> surprise me. It's right. not the first time, won't be yeah. the last time. Exactly. Fucking guy. Yeah. Uh, and, but the score, it's so great. It's just, it's right from oh, the it's beginning. It's chaotic yeah. and it's frantic and it just sets the mood for what we're about to see. And I, I love that so much. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. So again, you're probably going to get sick of it. And I apologize. But as I went through, I, I, because I read the novel so recently, well, I listened to the audiobook, but you know, same thing. Um, the immediate difference from the novel to the film is right from the beginning, Sam and Marion are in a hotel room. Yeah. Was, it was very salacious compared to the novel um, because in the novel, like we find out their history, basically like they met, um, she went on like a singles cruise or whatever, just a cruise by herself. And um, after, because she was trying to care for her mother for a long time and then she passed and so she ended up going on a cruise and she met him there and kind of they fell in love, but he lives so far away and, you know, he's trying to pay off his debts from the shop, which is why later on he mentions, oh, yeah, in this scene, he, she's like, Why don't we, let's get married. And he's like, oh, well, we'll spend, you know, you, we can be husband and wife in the back of the of the hardware store. It's because he literally lives in the hardware store because he's trying to pay off some debts. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah. So, but I, I like this. It, it's just, it's such a, it's such a good way to start it because it just gives that visual um of of these two these two lovers and they're in a motel and so that's automatically you you have you know certain thoughts about it uh i just thought it was 
an interesting well, way to kick things off. It, it's seedy. Yeah. But at the same time, I thought their, their little scene there. Um, you know, she's all clad in white, you know, bra and panties or right. bra and, and she had like a white slip, I guess. Yep. And uh, he's shirtless and they're on the bed and, you know, they're talking about like how they should be together, but their finances are making them not, you know, mm-hmm. make it feasible. And, you know, she's giving them some little kisses. And I'm like, that's really hot. Like even for, <laughs> for like for 1960s standard, having her, in, you know, in a bra Oh, yeah, and that's then, a big deal, yeah. That's a huge deal. Yeah. And just the fact, like, you know, they're talking and, like, it, it feels right. Like, they should be together because mm-hmm. they love each other. It's not like he's cheating on her and, she, and he, and you know, it, like, he doesn't have a, he has an ex-wife. She's right. single, but, she, and, you know, she's she's getting older and she's single, so she's starting to be looked upon as a, you know, older crone. Um, but I think they're great together and... You know, her kissing him, these little tiny pecks and stuff. I thought that was really sensuous. And, uh, it shows that, you know, like they don't en- like they enjoy their, their hookups, but right. they don't enjoy the fact that they have to tiptoe around mm-hmm. to, ha- you know, to be together. Um, I thought it was a really, you know, s- sweet scene, even though, you know, for 1960s standards, it's shocking. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. No, I'm with you 100%. And I, I love, I love the character of Sam because he's just like a genuinely, good guy trying to do the right thing trying to you know not take her as his wife until he can you know provide for her and that you know obviously in this time that was just you know kind of the thing that that he felt he should do so and and then you know like sam's name sam loomis i wonder if that's halloween did a callback to psycho exactly by using the loomis name you know yeah yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because i absolutely wrote that down i just noticed it um, I, I guess I never noticed it while I was going through the book, but I, I noticed it here. So yeah, I love that. Like, yeah, tidbit. I mean, it has to be all tied together. Like I, I would assume so. You know, you know? like yeah. it, it, it's Janet's daughter that's in the film. Exactly. But, yeah. Exactly. So there, there's a link there. Definitely. Um, man, and then and then we are introduced. So and then obviously we get we get uh, Hitchcock's cameo about five or six minutes into this. He is standing outside the office that Marion works at and when she walks in we see him outside he kind of turns to the window a little bit so we see his face but yep that was Hitchcock's cameo in this one um and another thing I thought was interesting is that Sam um who is played by um uh, John Gavin name? John Gavin I thought he actually looked younger than Marion um uh, which I feel like is unusual in this time and it turns out he actually is younger he's only about four years younger yeah the actor uh, but I thought he looked noticeably younger, so I thought that was interesting because I feel like you don't don't normally see that, especially back then. You know, mm-hmm. so I thought that stood out to me. But um, and then we were introduced to Tom Cassidy, played by Frank Albertson, and I just like I instantly hated him. Just the misogyny just seeped from his fucking pores. Oh, and I loved how Marion responded to him. She just could not be any less interested seemingly in anything he was saying. And it was so great because he's such a piece of shit. Well, and he keeps saying, you know, well, you know, you can buy away your troubles and yeah. she's got, she's got money troubles mm-hmm. and not once does she think about sleeping with him, you know, right. like a prostitute, mm-hmm. even though that's exactly what he was implying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is exactly an right. absolute creep. Absolutely. No doubt. He does He does a great job playing a, creep ball sure does um the other i don't know her i don't have her name in front of me i guess uh maybe caroline the the, the other uh, uh, receptionist yes she cracked me like she was so 
she was such a character. We we had like maybe four or five lines from her, but yeah. yet she stands out to me because she was such a good character. She was well, she's hilarious. Like yeah, her. Um, she's uh, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, I think. Yeah. Oh, was no, it no. The do- his daughter? Yeah, that's or his daughter. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Very cool. I totally didn't realize that. But yeah, she uh, she cracked me up. Just just her line. She you know did I get any calls? And she's like, what does she say? Like. Uh, her boyfriend or her husband called and then my mom called about asking if my husband called and like i don't know it was just ridiculous like yeah mm-hmm. she, she was she was quite humorous and just the fact character. that she was given tranquilizers at her wedding yeah. you know? <laughs> exactly <laughs> i know <laughs> see my husband was quite upset when he found out i had a tranquilizer oh so stupid um so one thing that obviously you don't get in the film that you get in the novel are you know inner dialogue and so this whole the whole thing where Marion is like basically has decided that she's going to take the cash mm-hmm. in the book, you know, it's basically a chapter or so based, you know, talking about what's going through her head and everything she's thinking about and then making the decision here in order to make up for that Hitchcock, he keeps flashing back to the cash sitting on the bed. And so that just gives the viewer like the the idea that. This is the inner turmoil going on. She's doing this, but yet she keeps turning back to the cash. So like every time she does something, the, the camera goes right back to the cash. And it's just such a great way of making the cash such uh, a, a point of um, like anguish contention. for her or yeah. contention. Thank you. Yes. Well, and, and that's the thing too is like she's made her decision that she's going to take the cash because now she's dressed in black lingerie, you know? Yep. So it's, it's like it's her, it's her devil on her shoulder saying, yeah, take the cash go be with the man of your dreams you know exactly. um but it's not a it's not a, a black or white decision for her mm-hmm. you know like she's decided that she's gonna take it but she keeps like flip-flopping saying maybe i shouldn't and then and then when she does make an action then you know she feels guilty right away so right. so her this is not in her character of like just stealing this cash and running away it's exactly. it's really out of character for her. Yeah, and and she's not good at it. No, she's not. She's not professional. We'll as we, right, as we'll see as we go on. Um, I love that scene where she's driving away and Mr. Lowry is walking across the street and like happens to turn and see Marion and just his reaction. Like that's not from the novel. That's completely added in. But okay. it's so great because just that like the psycho theme – you know, mm-hmm. that, the, like, the, the infamous, what we know from Psycho, starts up right there. And it's just fucking perfect. Uh, it's just, it's so great. I love that scene. Well, you know what's crazy about that scene? Is if you look at her behind the wheel, in the background, there are Christmas decorations. And I guess the B unit, when they were filming all the road scenes that was then, you know, back projected when they were doing the driving scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hitchcock didn't notice. So I was like, well, fuck, I got these Christmas decorations. I got to make this a, a Christmas-themed film. Or oh, that's why he said it in December? That's what he said in December before <laughs> Christmas because it's Love like that. the town would be already decorated, right? That's so that's awesome. how he, he got by that uh, mistake because that's it wasn't funny. like – There's no indication it's it's December because it's in Arizona exactly. and uh, in California. So it doesn't matter. But uh, that's the reason why it was like December 12th at 2.43 p.m. Uh, yeah. It's because of that scene and the uh, decorations in the background. That's funny. Yeah, no, I yeah. didn't notice that. I didn't catch that. That's really cool. And it's interesting because you mentioned that it takes place in Arizona because the the novel mostly takes place in Texas. 
She's coming up from, I can't remember where she's coming up from. Like if it's Mississippi or Alabama or something, I can't remember. Um, but the majority of the novel takes place in Texas. And here, the majority of the novel of the film takes place in California, which okay. I feel like is, it doesn't change anything really. It's just probably because that's where they were filming. And so they wanted to make it more genuine in that regard. Yeah. But, um, and then like, you know, in the novel, she makes a clean break. Like she has no real kind of tension. All the tension is, is inner turmoil, inner tension. Whereas okay. here, Hitchcock, which he didn't write the script, obviously, but um, uh, Joseph, whatever his name was, um, Stefano creates this turmoil, um, more outer or this tension um, because like she falls asleep on the side of the road and the police officer comes up to stop her. Um, and like, and, and I love that because her immediate reaction to that is to like start the car and try to drive away. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. obviously something that would never be done today uh, without getting you know arrested but uh, that's such a great scene because hit like clearly um janet lee is a beautiful woman and that shot that close-up on her face she's so striking in that she just looks so great and then it goes back and forth between her and the cop with the sunglasses her and the cop her and the cop um and it's just such a, a really interesting back and forth between them and it, it's very obvious that Hitchcock understood how striking she was and, and really played that up there. And I think that works really well. I think so, too. Oh, absolutely. And then talking about, you know, kind of in this scene and in the next scene when um, she's at the car dealership, how she's not oh. good at this. Like, no, but she I can't hide it. No, no. She's so nervous, right? Exactly. And I just loved the car dealership scene because mm-hmm. I thought uh, I think his name was California Charlie, yes, the yeah. attendant. Fuck, was he good? And, yeah, he and, was. And, and that's something about these films, you know, because they're like they're from the sixties. Yeah. Just the way they speak, mm-hmm. and you know, and you know, he's got his uh, his spiel. Like he said it every day, you know, ever since exactly. he's worked there, and he's yeah. got it down pat. And it just it it's so smooth. <laughs> I, I I I just love the character. I really did because you know he's got this sh- this shtick he's doing, and mm-hmm. then she kind of scratches his vinyl record, you know. Right? Yeah, she's because, throwing him off exactly. Yeah, because like you know he's like, "I'll trade you the, your car for you know the car you want yep. plus seven hundred dollars," and she says yes right away, and yeah. he's ready to haggle down, you know, mm-hmm. to make the sale. And she her just saying yes right off the bat. He's never encountered that before. Right. You know, so he he's she's actually by being so pushy pushes him off his game. And yep. uh I I just I just love that scene. It is it is a it is a really good scene. It's such like a it, it seemingly small scene, you know. Um and with with such a small character, but I mean, just clearly an excellent actor because you remember him even with that small those small moments. Yeah. Uh, and that's and, another thing I love about like older films you're talking about. I feel like even these small character, these smaller characters, yeah, the actors I feel like just give so much to them, and they just feel so re- real a lot of the time. Yeah, and what I also liked is that you know we kept seeing the shot of the high patrol officer, yeah, leaning on his car, yep. looking. He looked really menacing, you mm-hmm. know, because he knows that she's up to no good. Yeah. And, and she's kind of freaking out because like she's at this point of no return mm-hmm. where if she does buy this car, she has to dip in at 40 grand. 
Right. So let's say she wants to return it. Then she has to find another $700 that she doesn't have to begin with. Yeah. So this, this is really her, her, her moment of truth. And she still goes along with it. Yeah. And, and I, I, one thing that kind of bugged me was the fact that, so clearly the cop thinks something is wrong. Like, why not probe a little bit more instead of just staring? Like, why not do something? Um, just, I just felt like he could have had more action. Oh, see, I like it what he did because he rattled her so much. She almost left without her, her luggage. Mm-hmm. You know, she had her cash in her, in her, uh, in her purse, but all her belongings or her suitcase was still in her car. Um, so she was so frazzled. So he doesn't have to do much to begin with. Right. But what is that? What does that result for him? Well, maybe she's going to make a mistake, slip up to where she's going to go. Or maybe, you know, she grabs her suitcase and it, uh, you know, it f- falls like, you know, it, it, it unlatches and everything gets spilled <laughs> out. So it doesn't need a, a warrant or anything, you know, uh, it, sometimes it's, it's the small things that you don't need to, you don't need to do a lot to get something out of it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I'm overthinking uh, things. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this and and just con- continuing with the idea of tension and how Hitchcock and Stefano add tension to this, the the score it does so much to add to that. Um, and another great example of this is when she's driving um, through that rainstorm, about to approach the motel for the first time. I mean, she can barely see out the window, um, yeah. and it just the music really helps drive home the danger of this moment, and it's it's so well done. It actually reminds me of my drive back from uh, Montreal a few weeks ago. Uh, oh, yeah. It was so bad. Like, uh, you know, if, if there was a motel, I probably would have pulled over. Right. Um, yeah, she, like, it's, it's by pure coincidence that she did stop at the Bates Motel. And it's funny too, because she originally gets stopped or gets knocked on the, on her, on her, on her, um, on her door because yeah. she's sleeping in the car. And the officer tells her, well, you should go sleep, you know, you should go stop at one of these, uh, you know, roadside right. motels. Mm-hmm. She finally does. And it's the, it's the decision that will cost her life. Exactly. Yeah. That was one thing I didn't remember any of the from when I watched it. Like, um, oh, okay. Um, but, I mean, that was like a hundred years well, ago, so I could see why oh, you'd forget oh, that. Oh, funny, funny. No, uh, <laughs> I, I do remember like the, the shower scene music. Um, mm-hmm. and for some reason, I, I, maybe it's because I watched the remake probably within the last like five years. Uh, oh, okay. I think I remembered that, but yeah, that was, I, I do like the music in this. I think it's effective. I just, I didn't remember it at all. Yeah. So. Um, I love that the, the first thing we see when we see the Bates home, the Bates mansion is what looks to be a woman walking across the window um, it's just a, the perfect setup. And in the, in the novel, like they are able to manipulate the re- block is able to re- manipulate the reader so much more because it's simply Norman is talking to his mother. His mother says this, Norman says this, whereas in the movie, you, you can't do it that way. You can't do it in quite that way. And so I think this is just such a smart way to kind of, you know, give that same feeling in, in a very short amount of time. Okay. Well, I, I just find it interesting because, like, when we hear the mother's voice, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, I, I know what happens at the end, okay? Um right. So, I'm trying not to think about that so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just don't know how they can explain, you know, um, Mary and hearing another woman's voice. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, you, you do, 
you don't expect Norman to be, would be able to make a voice that high or to sound so feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, it, 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 it's them talking, which sometimes like, it's kind of like, it's a red herring. And then later on when he's bringing the, his mother down to the basement, like, yeah. and you're, you're clearly seeing legs, you know, like fleshy legs. So how does Norman explain that? You know, so mm-hmm. those are like two small things where really as a viewer, you wouldn't expect the final results of the film, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about later. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I, I, I thought that those were interesting, um, uh, Things that Hitchcock did to throw the viewer off the scent of what exactly the answer to this riddle really is. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it, you know, it just, it plays into the, the, what they were trying to, what Block was trying to do with the novel. Um, I feel like that's his kind of answer to it, which is interesting because um, Stefano talks about how he and Hitchcock, their first meeting was basically Stefano pitching the novel idea. And I feel like, you know, they may have read it or whatever. And then after that first meeting, he said Hitchcock never uh, referred to the novel again. And so it was just all from Stefano's script. And so it basically all came from him as opposed to Hitchcock being like, oh yeah, this is from the novel. We're going to put this here type of thing. So I thought that was very fascinating how close it was to the novel um, and some things, and then, yeah. you know, just other things so different, but, hmm. um, and another thing I, I thought was fascinating. So Stefano talks and, and Stefano kind of answers this, but here, obviously Perkins, Anthony Perkins is, I, I mean, he's, he's a very skinny, almost, almost charming at points guy. Like he oh. just seems like a nice guy. He's very charming. Like, yeah. and, and I was, again, having never seen this film before mm-hmm. and having only seen clips of the film, like in, like, in, in packages or, or whatever, um, I was actually blown away how charming and disarming he is when yeah. he meets Mirren for the first time. Right. Like, he's and, almost suave, you know? I think. Mm-hmm. But that, and, that quickly goes away. Yeah. Oh, and I think. Yeah, exactly. The more you get to know him. Yes. And but but in the novel, Norman is actually a he's described as as a, a fat man, um, like balding, um, has a very clear um, like social personality disorder going on, um, mm-hmm. very you know seclu- uh, a very a very much a recluse, which they talk about here, uh, but he doesn't feel like it like he he did in the book, and so I thought that was a very interesting switch, and it the reason he did that, Stefano did that, is because he wanted. The viewer needs to obviously we we are introduced to a woman who we think this this film is about, and then she you know forty five minutes in she dies, fifty minutes in she's dead, and then we find out that this story is really about Perk about Norman, and mm-hmm. so he wants the the audience to feel be able to sympathize with Norman to almost feel bad for him at points, so then you know we'll care about what's going on with him, and he didn't get that feeling with the character that's described in the book, and I agree with him. The character in the book is just is entirely unlikable, and so I, I really like this change to uh, Perkins as as Norman Bates, and and Perkins does such a phenomenal job with the character. Yeah. It's it's really well incredible. I, and honestly, I think Perkins is probably one of the more underrated actors around. Um, I I grew up with him. Um, part of the reason I watched Psycho was because Anthony, or, you know, he, he Perkins was in it. Uh, but the first movie I'd actually seen him in was The Black Hole, 
which <laughs> oh okay yeah so i love that as a kid i was like oh he's in this too and it's like oh okay so i watched that i'm like wow okay i i'm never going to watch the black hole the same way again uh but right because yeah, he's just i and he like you said he's just so charming but he is so fucking creepy by the end of this movie it's just wow yeah absolutely um and and you're talking about uh mark how that quickly changes and i love like kind of the first hint that something is is different is when he can't he literally cannot say the word bathroom to marion <laughs> yeah like such an interesting spot it, it kind of makes sense because apparently psycho was the first film to yes. actually portray a toilet and a flushing toilet. Yeah, which is that such a weird tidbit, but yes. It was taboo up until then that people didn't show that. Yeah. So Hitchcock made sure, which would then make sense that uh, Bates had trouble with that because it's not something you talk about or that you see, mm-hmm. you know? And then you see later on, too, when he's offering the sandwiches and, and, the, and the drink to, uh, to Marion, he won't go in her room. You know, right, let's go exactly. into my parlor instead where I feel comfortable. Yep. Yeah. And it's interesting because actually Stefan, uh, the writer, was the one who said he wanted this toilet in here. And so instead of just writing in, we see the toilet. He wrote in this whole scene of her, f- you know, writing down these numbers and then flushing it down the toilet so that it couldn't be cut. And then Hitchcock made him go fight for it because he's the one who wrote it in there. He needs to be the one that makes sure it stays. And at least that's how Stefano tells the story. Yeah. And so it's interesting, this whole thing about something so seemingly meaningless to us. Well, especially nowadays, story. right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But back then, that's it's huge. It was huge. Mm-hmm. Another uh, change here. So in the novel, the the cash, she keeps it in the glove department of the car. And she almost forgets about it as she's having this conversation with Norman. And she goes after and takes a shower. here. She's trying to find this perfect spot to hide the money. Um, and I, I just thought that was another, just a great visual to help keep the tension going around this inner struggle that she has with these with this cash. Well, in the film, doesn't she just roll up in a newspaper? That's what she ends up doing, yes. And does she put it in her purse or is it just on the no, bed? No, it's, it's on the end table. Next ah, time gotcha. Time. Okay. Yeah. Which I find funny after the fact because then, you know, later on, Norman – you know, picks up her yep. belongings, not knowing he's got 40 grand in his hand. Exactly. And that's what's yeah. so awesome. And I wrote that down. He literally, it's just a flick of the wrist and it's into the, into the car. Why? Because the money, it's not about the money. This yeah. film is not, up to this point, we think this film's about the money, but it's not. It's about this, this psychotic man. It's about not, mother. Exactly. Not this woman who's stealing money. And so I think that it's such a, just a fucking brilliant, like small thing. Just the flick of the wrist into the trunk and close the hood, uh, close the trunk, and that's it. Like, yeah. I just imagine, I wrote this down, like, I imagine there might have been some, like, audible gasps when this cash, this $40,000, just $330,000 in cash just gets tossed into the into the trunk, you know, and forgotten. And it's just very cool. <laughs> well, Because the, the – I'll go ahead. Uh, yeah, it's I, – I like the classic misdirection that they use with it it's like yes. the it's like the sound cues in jaws uh where you mm-hmm. know throughout the movie you always hear the sound music so that you, you associate that with a shark and then the one time they want to scare the shit out of you with it there is no sound cue exactly yeah it, it's a lot like that um yeah 
Yeah, you, you train the audience type of thing, as my wife put it. Right. And the film starts as a heist film where, you know, yes. uh, uh, Marion steals 40000 and it becomes really a story of a man's psyche. Yeah, exactly right. And I think that's, you know, uh, part of the – and that's why Hitchcock didn't let want people to come in after it started, obviously. And it's uh, it's, it's cool. Very fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, th- I did find it a little comical how clearly Marion was able to hear Norman arguing with his quote-unquote mother up at the house from her room. It was as if they were like standing right outside the door or the window. And I thought that was that was a little funny because it was so clear. But I'll I'll, uh, I'll do the suspension of disbelief for that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you already mentioned it, but just that that when she invites to eat, him to eat in her room, it's just such a he, like he literally takes a step. He stops and then suggests that the office would be warmer. It's just a great job of showcasing this like social awkwardness that that he has with with these women and uh it's it's very cool it's just he's he's so sheltered you Mm -hmm. know and he doesn't know that marion is she's like she is a good person Mm -hmm. you know but then she invites him in into the room you know to eat and then he gets his naughty thoughts Mm -hmm. so maybe if she wouldn't have even offered to go into her room to eat maybe she'd still be alive possibility who knows you know like it's just it, it could be anything that sets him off. Exactly. Um, we find out though that it's because she lied to him. Mm-hmm. You know, because after they eat in the parlor, she talks about how she has to go back to Arizona, and she says her real name. After right. you know, in the ledger, she wrote Los Angeles, and she put um, some. She put another yeah, I, like something yeah, Samuels. Yeah. yeah I so what you know what ticked him off was that, and that's what led him to to killing her. Um, but there's a few things that could have set him off prior to that because he's such he's so fragile and sheltered. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you mentioned that because I didn't think about that. What actually set him off in 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 the novel? It's he's watching it, it, him watching her undress through the people is a much bigger thing in the novel, and that's really what sets him off because he gets it in his head that she is she knows he's watching, and okay, he she's like um, basically whoring it up for him essentially and that's kind of and then he thinks that he falls asleep at least in the book it says he falls asleep and then that's when mother attacks and so Uh, that's kind of what does it there but but see i think he peeps at her because he's mad at her Mm -hmm. and since this isn't the first time he's killed before right uh i think peeping will bring out mother yeah which will then serve justice for her son if that makes sense yeah, because right, yeah, because he I just feel like it's something he knows mother wouldn't approve of. Yeah. Um, so a couple shots in this film that really stood out to me, I just absolutely loved. And in the first one, um the shot where the camera it, the camera's kind of on it's close to the ground and it's looking up at Norman in the chair, and there's the owl, the stuffed owl, his taxidermist owl in the background. Yeah. Um when he's talking about how sometimes he would like to curse her as mother and leave her forever. It just for some reason, the, the angle of that shot with the owl in the background, the stuffed fake, you know, the stuffed owl, it just added to the whole creepiness of this scene. And really, the whole scene I thought was pretty creepy. Like, it's just uneasy because even though he's having a relatively normal conversation, his reactions are all over the place, which makes him feel unpredictable, which is always scary. Um, and then, like, when she finally suggests that he should put his mother, quote unquote, somewhere, and then he leans forward. I was like, damn, like this fucker can snap at any second. 
And I, I also liked the way he talked about how he just like stuffing birds and not uh, beasts. <laughs> yes. And just, I know he, he's, he's so peculiar because he's also very bird-like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mentioned later on in the commentary track when he's eating the, the, uh, carom- uh the candy corn, which right off the oh, bat, yes. another sign you're crazy is that you're eating a bag of candy corn <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he's actually pecking at it like a bird. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe it's a way to distance himself from his mom to be something else. Um, you know, it could be, it could be a lot of things, but, uh, I, I, I just find his mannerisms, like she realizes through his hobbies, how odd this guy really is. Exactly. And that leads up to his, uh, the infamous line. We all go a little mad sometimes. It's just such a great, great line. Such an iconic moment in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting here. She she makes this decision to head back to Phoenix to return the cash while she's having this conversation with Norman. Um, and she references like the the little private traps that people fall into that they are talking about earlier. Um, this is the same decision that's made in the novel, but it's actually like after the fact, after she's back in a room kind of contemplating things. But I like it. I love it here because she's just having this conversation and, she, and, and this this one line kind of sticks with her. And that's when she makes this decision that, you know what, she's going to she's gonna try to return this money. I think it's it's very, very well done. And it's great, too, because it is too little too late. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but she leaves, you know, his uh, his parlor feeling good yep. about herself because she is going to do the right thing. Exactly. And she's going to take that that shower. She's happy. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And, and uh, right before that, though, the Hitchcock does use this. Light and shadow, just better than you know most. And obviously, we'll get his use of light in just a minute with the shower scene. But right before that, when uh, Norman heads back into the parlor to start watching her undress, the light on his face—it's you know half is in shadow, half is in light—and it's just so fucking perfect to like kind of showcase the dichotomy that's going on basically at this moment in time that we're seeing him. Um, with his multiple personalities, mother kind of taking, you know, coming out. Uh, it's it's just such a brilliant use of lighting, and it it works so well. And I also have to thank Hitchcock for that scene because if it wasn't for that, then I don't think we'd ever get the film Porky's. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not. Right. Yes. So so thank, thank you. you, Mr. Hitchcock. Thank you, Mr. Hitchcock. Yes, and that's funny because I would well, and the the. Special features are watching. They always refer to him as Mr. Hitchcock. It's never anything else. It's always Mr. Hitchcock. It just shows the respect that he has earned over the from his colleagues over the years. Um, there's that shot. It's such a simple shot, such a simple moment, but and, and it's small. But when Norman walks into his house again, um, and he sits down at the kitchen table, the depth that Hitchcock finds putting him in the middle of this like very full frame. It's uh, like filled with shit from the house, just down the hall, and then he's right in the middle in this open in this open frame with the light above him. It's I don't know what it was. It was just a very striking shot for me. I it, I really enjoyed it. Just some another one of those instances where I feel like he just has such a masterful uh, command of the camera. Oh, I totally agree. And then we get the shower scene. Ah, the, the scene. scene. One scene. of the most iconic moments in film history let alone horror history and it happens so fast yeah Yeah, it is 
it's a lot faster than you think it would be. Exactly. And in and, that, go ahead. Uh, I'll be honest. Um, I didn't expect this scene to happen so quickly. Again, not having seen this film before. Oh, yeah. I thought it was right at the end of the movie. Exactly. So, and that's, that. yeah, that's one of the reasons I think it's such a powerful film. Because yeah, it at the end. Later realizing really the film is cut into two and this would be the end of the first part. Right. It's like from Dust yeah. Till Dawn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kinda. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's it's clearly where, where Craven gets the idea to advertise a blonde with short hair on the cover of one of his posters and then kill her 15 minutes into the film. Yeah. Like very clearly, this is where that inspiration came from. And I and I love that. That's totally fine. I love it. Um, but with this scene, so they always talk about there's like 92, 96, something like that cuts in this short um, sequence of, of, of uh, Norman killing. Of mother killing um, Marion. Yeah. And the use of backlighting is perfect. I remember using this as the example in my film class when I taught the film class because I was like going over like basic shots and backlighting was one of the shots I wanted to showcase. And this was the example because it's absolutely perfect. Keeps the character in shadow so we can't see the face for obvious reasons. Um, Yeah, we can still see what's going on. Um, And then like, I, you know, I always remember here about Hitchcock using chocolate syrup to make the blood. It was like one of the first bits of horror trivia I think I ever picked up. Um, and that was confirmed again in the uh, in the special features I was watching. Um, and then, you know, I love that shot when we move from the bathroom. We see her eye and she's not blinking. And that's her. That's not a dummy. That's her not blinking, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. And it kind of backs up and turns. There is, there is a cut, but it's made to look like one shot. And... Then it uh, goes from her right to, where does it go? Uh, oh, to the money in the newspaper on the end table. And then goes to the house where we hear Norman yelling at his mother about the blood. Um, it's just so, it's awesome. Like, I love shots like that. And again, just the way Hitchcock moves the camera is probably better than anybody. It He's just so well with it. Well, what he did with that scene as well is that he got the guy who did the opening titles of the film, yes. Saul Bass, to storyboard the uh, the the kill scene, exactly, so that they knew exactly what to do and what they could cut out if the ratings board was against it. Because I think I didn't notice it, but the commentary track said that you know you saw part of a nipple at one point. Yeah. Um, I was surprised to see the, a naked stomach because of a 1960s film and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, they were a, able a nude model come in. Yes, like a body double, body double for yeah. for yeah for the really nude parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they were able to get away with what they did because it was so well storyboarded. Right, exactly. Um, and it's so interesting because they talk about how you never really see, you don't see any penetration, but you no. Every time there is a cut, like in the person's skin where there'd be a cut, there's a cut in the film. And so when you see that cut, it's just in, in the sound that's played. It's just, yes, this person's being stabbed. And it's almost as like your mind plays tricks as if you are seeing this person get cut when in reality you're not. It's um, all theater awesome. of the mind. Yep. Exactly. Well, and and the way, you know, people work, it's you're imagining things far worse than you're actually seeing anyway. Right. Yeah, definitely. And that we're and that's why this and that's why the scene is so effective. Um and interestingly, in the novel, it's actually a much more brutal killing and it actually ends in decapitation. 
Oh, that really? Is, yeah. The last line of the of the chapter is something along the lines of, as the as the knife went through her head or through her uh, uh, neck, or something along those lines. But it, it definitely ends in a decapitation. And uh, Stefano was like, "Yeah, we need to make sure that." people understand that we are not going to behead Janet Lee on film. Like that's yeah. not going to happen. And so this, yeah. So it was much more brutal uh, in story form. That makes sense because as per the commentary track I read or mm-hmm. listened to, I should say, um, like in the book, they're saying that, you know, uh, Norman Bates is like an Ed Gein type of character. Yeah. He's very and, based uh, on Ed Gein. Yeah. So that would make sense for that type of character and not for a Anthony Perkins style character, you know? Yep. Exactly. Um, which I guess that's what makes his casting so much cooler. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because he can take, you know, the, the same principles and like, more than his own little thing and not be so violent and gross, but be, you know, mal-mannered and, and preppy. Right. But have so much evil behind his eyes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so after the kill, like I did remember spending as much time with Norman while he cleaned up as we did, but I thought it was fascinating to watch like him attempt to, to clean everything from the scene. And it was almost like a reintroduction. Cause you mentioned it's like a second part of the film, you know, a second half of, or a second film almost. And it's yeah. almost like we're being reintroduced to him now that we kind of know more about what's going on, even though we don't know that he's obviously the one that did this. But obviously, there's this past here. There's something new that we've just learned about the world that he lives in. And so we're kind of being reintroduced to him. And I think it's interesting. Well, it's like he's the victim. You know, his exactly. mother just killed someone. He's going to clean up after. Her. So he's a prisoner in his own residence. Right, right. Um, and then we talked about already um, – the cash going into the trunk and how it just means nothing. It's just such a cool moment. Um, I found it funny how quickly the car sunk into the mud here. Uh, in the book, he literally was sitting out there for hours, almost until daybreak, waiting for this car to finally sink and freaking out that it wouldn't sink because it stops like it does in the film. It stops to, at the top and he's like, oh shit, what's going to happen? And then it finally you know, submerges in full for for the final moments. Okay. Uh, and I think it's really cool how they did it here. So they're obviously on the, the set at Universal and they, they have this lake. I forget what they call it. But anyway, they emptied the lake and then put a ramp in or like a uh, – yeah, I guess a ramp that was mm-hmm. on – like that could go up and down. And so he pushes the car in and it's actually on string. So it's pulled onto the ramp and then it's – they start lowering the like lift that it's on and then they stop it at the top. And he's, and that's when we get the shot of him looking like, oh, what am I going to do? And then they keep lowering it and it sinks the whole thing. And they actually said they did it in one shot, one take because they were worried about what they would have to do to clean this thing up to try a second take. But yeah, they ended up getting it in one take. And so I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, and then just like that, we are introduced to a brand new set of characters. We get Lilla, Marion's sister, the, uh, the PI Arbogast, and of course, the returning Sam Loomis. Um, Which this blew me away. Because, you know, you, you hear about Psycho and you yeah. see clips, you know, in compilations. Mm-hmm. And they're, at least it's best to my interpretations, they're never discussed. Exactly. So, now knowing this second half of the film, which I never knew existed, yeah. uh, I think it's really cool. Yeah, no doubt about it. it it's, it's, very, it's very interesting. Um, and again, I apologize. It gets old, I know, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, I love the way these two meet in the in the book 
because uh, she actually shows up at the shop in like the middle of the night and it's like a stormy, rainy night. Okay. And it's dark. And he opens the door and basically sees her silhouette and thinks it's Marion. So he goes in to try to kiss her. And she's like, whoa, whoa. And that's when he realizes that it's actually the sister, not Marion. Uh, and I wish they would have done something with that in in the film. Just I think it's such an interesting way to show like that these two look pretty similar when you're uh, kind of squinting a little bit. So I, I like that. But uh, with these three, we get so much less of, of the relationship between Arbogast um lilla and sam here than we do in the book um and i think that kind of hurts the film a little bit and uh, i'll talk about that kind of as we go on here but here arbogast he gets to base motel super quickly it's actually like uh in the, in the social it's 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 the last resort um they talk about how Bates motel is actually on the quote-unquote old highway which they do yeah. they do make mention of that in the movie there's like two lines dedicated to it yeah. Um, but because it's on the old highway versus the new highway, it doesn't get much traffic. And so he takes the new highway out, he stops at all these hotels, which he mentions, and then takes the old highway back just so he can hit that one last spot. Um, and once he gets to that Bates Motel, he doesn't leave. Here, mm-hmm. he he leaves, makes a phone call from the uh, telephone booth, and then returns. At In the book, he actually makes the phone call from the lobby or from the, like, the parlor. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, um, he is actually about to go visit the mother uh, because Bates doesn't want him because he keeps t- talking about these this warrant. He mentions it a couple times yes. in the movie. Yeah. And Bates actually doesn't want him to get the warrant because then that'll bring more cops out. And so he's just going to let him talk to mother. But of See, course- The way I saw it in the film, it was a bit like a empty threat because he is, he is a PI, you know, he's not a exactly. cop. So it was like, oh, I guess I'll have to get my warrant. Hopefully nope. that, you know, trying to disarm uh, yep. Norman. And he doesn't really take the bait to too much. He doesn't here. And that's right. But that's exactly what it is. Even in the in the book, it's just an empty threat. Because like you yeah. said, he's a PI. He's not a cop. And yeah. they don't want to get the cops involved because no. they are trying to get this money back to the person that he's working for, whatever his name was. And I love this Arbogast character. At first, he's really menacing when you meet, uh, when he meets, uh, Lila and Sam at the yeah. hardware store. Mm-hmm. But then when you realize he's not on their side, he's on the side of the truth, right? Which is what they really want. So they tend, to, then they start working together. Exactly. Um, I really dug the character. He was like really no nonsense and he was just taken off guard and that's how he passes away. I'm glad that you said that because I was not sure if. He, if I, I was very interested to hear what you would think of the character, okay, um, just you know from the film itself because I think, um, you know, I think the actor who is it, I uh, uh, Martin Balsam, yeah, his face is very familiar, but he's he's great, um, yeah. and he does an excellent job with it. I just feel like he's not as fleshed out as much as he could be, um, so I'm I, I like that you actually you know, thought that he was a great character because I really yeah. think he is too. And yeah, he's in twelve between... angry men, that's why I know him from. God, he's brilliant. Oh, okay. Too. But between him and then California Charlie, it, it just makes you want to watch more film noirs. Exactly. Oh, God. You I know? I, I've, I've loved every film noir I've seen, and I just need to spend more time with it because it's such a – I just love them. They're so cool, uh, but I need to watch That could more. be a fun future arc. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another shot that I absolutely fucking love, one of my favorites, is when Norman – is he chewing – is this when he's chewing the candy corn? I wrote down chewing the gum, but this might be when he's chewing the candy corn – and he's talking with Arbogast and he yeah. leans over the camera 
and he's like looking in the guest registry as Arbogast finds the name. Yes, like and he's broken. got that weird like you like you see his throat. Yes, exactly. And that's like, a weird shot, but it's good because it shows know. you know his world is kind of unraveling around him. Right. It's like it's prolonged and it's uncomfortable to watch, but it's yeah, oh, it's so so cool because he's getting shot. caught in his own lie. It, exactly. Yeah, and he's trying to backpedal, and yep. he knows that Arbogast does not believe him at all. Right. And that's when we get the first character uh, stutter of Norman, yeah. which was entirely on Anthony Perkins, according to Stefano. Um, yeah. It was just a great characterization choice by Perkins. And it works so well because stutters are difficult to, to act and they can be super fake. But I think, God damn, Perkins is it's as natural as can be. Like, he does such a good job with it. Oh, I was blown away by his performance. Like, he really yeah. knocked it out of the park. Absolutely. He's so damn good. Yeah, that's why I'm curious to see how he's like in the future sequels. Yes, me too. Because I Very don't know much. what to expect. I really I don't. Um, yeah, I love like Arbic. Like you said, no nonsense. Like he's so ballsy. He just walks. He goes back to the hotel after making the phone call, and then just walks into the house without even knocking first. Like yeah. he's he's there to get the job done, and he's going to do it by any means necessary. So I I, I just I love that. Well, it's funny because like Arbogast is ballsy mm-hmm. when he does that. Because he's got confidence in himself. Yeah. And later then, on, when yes. Lila does it, um, she's doing it out of uh, survival. Right. Or out of, you know, like she just needs true. to know. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, it's very true. Um, and then I already mentioned that the last one was one of my favorites. But I think legit, one of my, the the way he frames this is so fucking great. Um, Arbogast's kill. Um, specifically like that overhead shot of him walking up the stairs and he's like, like the top two stairs or whatever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the music hits and mother comes flying out of the bedroom, stabbing him. I oh, it's so great. I love that. And they actually use that shot again later on, um, that same overhead shot when okay. I think it's when, uh, Norman is taking his mother down to the bait, to the, to the fruit cellar. Ah, uh, yes. It's so awesome. It reminds me of the very last shot from Taxi Driver. Have you, uh, have you seen Taxi Driver? Yeah. Okay. You remember the very She's last in- shot? I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't seen it, but there's a, a final shot where the camera is an overhead camera and it goes like in between the rooms at the very end of the film. Yes. Okay. Yes. I That, again, there are some moments in cinema that kind of stick with you and just are reasons you love watching films. That's yeah. one of them. And this is uh, another of those because it's so reminiscent of that. And I just, I love that so much. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um. And like I mentioned, like in the book, the, the relationship between the three of them, uh, Lila, uh, Sam, and, and Arbogast is so, is a lot more. Like it's over the course of like 24 hours, but you get a lot more in that 24 hours. And it actually might even be a little bit longer than that. Um, I think it actually is. I think it's like 48 hours. Um, and I wish that was played up a little bit more here. And one reason I say that, which I actually write down a little bit later, is um, – there's this that point where uh, Lila or Lila says, mm-hmm. "Excuse me, that um, she what does she say? She's something like you know, oh, I don't believe Arbogast. Oh, because when they go to the cop, he he suggests that Arbogast would have, like just found the money and left him. Yeah, but she's like, oh, I think he's really starting to like us. I don't think he would just up and leave us. But I don't really get that with the relationship that's presented here in the film at all." What did what did did you buy into that? That he would actually leave them? No, no that he that Li, that Lila could believe that he wouldn't leave them 
because he's started to kind of be their friends is what she yeah. is what she claims. Yeah, I don't think she, from, from her point of view, Arbogast will not have betrayed them. Okay, so you, okay, they had made yeah. the phone call to say, "Hey, you know what? I'll call you back when I got more info." Right. In her mind, there is no way that he would have done anything to like. See, he's he's a former cop, and he's very prideful. He wants, you know, he's being paid by an employer. Yeah. He he doesn't need the extra money, so I think it's out of his character that he would have found the cash and split. And okay. I and I I agree with her in that. She doesn't think he would have done that either. Okay. Well, good. Obviously, something happened. Okay. Well, I'm glad. That's that's awesome. Because that was one of the one of the things I was curious about is if you were able to buy into that. So I'm glad you were. That's cool. Um, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. I was. Uh, I, I never thought for a moment that uh, he would go crooked at all. Okay. Good. Um, I love that reveal when we find out that Norman's mother's been dead for ten years from the sheriff. I think Hitchcock does something with the audio to kind of highlight that line a little bit. It might just be like a volume thing, but it felt different than the rest of the dialogue by a very small margin. Something about it felt different when he says, you know, she's been dead for 10 years or whatever the line is. Yeah. Did you notice that at all or am I just kind of going crazy? I didn't notice it. Okay. And it could just be the DVD, the Blu-ray I watched, my TV, who knows, but- Or that I- or that I missed it. It's very possible. It could be. Did you catch anything like that, Ash? No, I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Who knows? But I thought that was interesting. Um, so and another, uh, another thing that was kind of strange to me, why why does Sam insist on signing in? Like, in, in the book, it's in there, it's there in the book because they don't know what, ha- they don't know a lot of the things they know at this point yet it, that they do in the film. And mm-hmm. so they're trying to sign in so that they can see the the registry so that they yes. can verify that the that his sister was there. But they already know that here and they don't even like oh say they don't even like make mention that they see her name or anything. So I was wondering why he insisted on signing in and why he insisted on on um needing needing the receipt. Like it just it felt strange to me. Did that work for you? Well, not just that, but also that he insisted on paying them ten dollars. Yeah, because yeah, that that's too. what that's what you would do, you know. I guess right. if you don't have any luggage, um, I think he he hammered those rules in because uh, Norman is hiding something, and he, he he knew something was up there, right? Yeah, and the fact that Norman was just trying to shoo them into a room. Mm-hmm. To have the least amount of contact with them. Right. And he's kind of forcing, like, no, no, I want to see the register. I want my receipt. I, I want to pay you the $10. Right. So that the, the more they, they spend time with them, the more they can get a feel of who this character really is. Like, yeah, he good. is possibly the last person that saw Marion alive. So I need to know if this guy's on the up and up or if he might actually be the killer. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good point. Um, because you did, you are you absolutely nailed the fact that he knows who he has an idea who they are because that it's played up very much in, in the book, how he knows who they are and gets instantly mad at them for trying to lie to him. So yeah, it's definitely a good, uh, good observation there. I'd say yeah. uh, one thing they don't change or the one thing they, they keep that in, but they don't change. I'm sorry. They, they keep that in, but they change the fact that they, in the book, they, they go into cabin one. Because they know mm-hmm. that that's where um, 
the last place that she was. But here they actually go into cabin 10. Um, and so I thought I thought that was kind of interesting. And then they break into cabin one, not break in, they walk in, but they yeah. go into cabin one without being invited, basically. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that was that was just strange. I don't know why that change was made at all. Um, well, I think but, it's smart because okay. why would why would um, Norman put them into the same room that he killed his sister in, or you know, or her sister in, you know? So to right. have her have them stay on the other side of the motel to me that makes kind of sense. No, it does. And in 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 the novel, he tried to put them in cabin ten or twelve, whatever the hell it was. But they were like, "Oh no, we want to be we want to be close to you, blah blah." So they like insist to stay there so that they could search the room, which is exactly See, what they do here. They search the room. Now, by insisting to be in cabin one to mm-hmm. be close to them, to me that's creepy because like, why would they want to be close to me if I'm just a motel attendant? You know. So to me, that sends out more red flags than than not. Yeah, but I don't. It, I'm making it sound dumber than it was, but it, I don't. It didn't. It didn't ring that way at all when I was okay. when I was going through it. So I feel like that, that's just my making it sound stupid. But um, I see. I see what you're saying, though. Absolutely. But I, I guess I just never got that with the way it was. It was done. It made more sense than yeah. how I'm able to express. Because at this point in the film, Norman doesn't know that. Uh, Lila is Marion's sister. I don't. I don't think he's come across that yet. It's only after that uh, him and uh, and uh, Sam have an extended chat while she's searching. I think in the house that he realizes, hey, you guys are trying to go through all my stuff. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I don't think at this point he's aware oh, that uh, they're related. Oh, okay. I thought you were say. I thought you said earlier that you you did think he he knew that they were there was something going on with these two when they got there. Did I say that? I, that's that's how I interpreted what you well, said. That, that, you know, that's two points of view, I suppose. Like that's like, yeah. Because, well, at the same time, maybe because when he is talking to Sam, he's really uneasy. But yeah. Sam is also the way he's talking to Norman isn't very polite either because it's accusatory right off the bat. Right. Right. Maybe he clues in during this. I don't know anymore. Maybe I'm confusing myself. I'm tired. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but I can see both sides of the coin. Yeah, definitely. Um, so mm-hmm. they, they find the shred of paper here in the bathroom, um, which I didn't, I didn't like that, that very much. I th- like in the, in the book, they find uh, one of her earrings in the bathroom and it's actually one of the earrings that, this that Lila bought her, and so that's how she knows it's her earring. Uh, yeah. That just is more palpable to me than finding a shred of paper with numbers written on it. Uh, but whatever, that's all right. Um, I, I really loved the scene when Norman and Sam talk in the book, and I like it here too. Um, and something else they they keep out is that uh, Norman is basically uh, he has a, a drinking problem as well, and that kind of sets him off at points. Yeah. Um, and I would have loved to see them kind of play that a little bit here, but I I, I like what they did with with uh, this Norman. It's a different Norman, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I like what they did with it. But I really I just like the tension uh, between Norman and Sam throughout this scene. I think it's it's very cool. Okay. The I love seeing excuse me I love seeing Norman's room because it's still filled with all these little kids' toys, just like it must have been when he was a child. It's just so fitting to his personality. Yeah, it is because, you know, he's also, even though he's an adult, he's very childlike as well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. 
they say a boy's best friend is, or they say a boy's best friend is his mother. I like that line. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then we get the the final moment of uh, him trying to kill Lila, and that I love that first moment that we see Norman in the mother outfit. Uh, I think it's just fucking amazing. Like he has this giant like smile on his face, and it's just so fucked up and creepy. And it's it works deranged. so well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely now, right. The the thing is, like you know, again, knowing what it is at the end, mm-hmm. but him appearing in the cellar after she freaks out over yeah. seeing mother's body, um, he looks psycho. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. And it, it, it kind of thing, even though you know what's going to happen, um, mm-hmm. you, you're you're kind of taken aback. Right. Uh, I, I I thought it was phenomenal. I thought he looked awesome. Yeah, he didn't put so up good. a fight, but just his, his appearance and the scream exactly. really works well. Yeah. Did you remember that scene from uh, when you watched it the first time, Ash? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I remember. I remember when she turns the corpse around. It just that freaked my shit out, and then you know, yeah, him coming in exactly. is like, oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then at the end, we kind of get this like epilogue of sorts, like the ex, the psychologist explaining what happened. Um, I felt like it's so over the top, but I, it just felt so fitting, even though it was a bit over the top, just like the way the actor played it. I, I enjoyed it. Well, from what I remember from the uh, the commentary, it was over the top, but apparently that scene helped the film survive the censors of 1960. Oh, that would make so, sense. It might feel like it's overexplained today. Today, yes. But yeah. I guess back then, um, that's the reason why it was, you know, like that put it sense. to black and white, and it made sense in a scientific way. So mm-hmm. the censors didn't slice up the film. Yeah, and that's a good point. We didn't even talk about it. it was put in black and white because Hitchcock felt the film would be too gory if it wasn't. That's a good point that we didn't even mention. But yeah. Um. I, I love the, and then that that final scene uh, in the interrogation room, the uh, she wouldn't even hurt a fly moment. It's it's so great, um, and then and Norman looking up at the camera with that devilish grin, and then they interpose a shot of of a skeleton over his face as it transitions into the shot of the car being pulled up out of the mud. Like ah, oh, it was so awesome. Did you guys see that at all? Oh yeah, yeah, very cool stuff. So anything else that you learned on the commentary track that we didn't talk about? Um, let me see here in my notes. Um, well, okay. One of the reasons for the, the police presence with Marion, um, Hitchcock had a legit fear of police. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's right. I read about that. Yeah. Um, another thing in the shower scene, it's Hitchcock who was, uh, holding the knife in the scenes because he alone knew how he wanted it in his mind, even though oh, it was storyboarded. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. I did the toilet thing already. Um, you know, I think we spoke about most of everything I had here. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of knowledge, but then I was picking and choosing because I couldn't write a whole book on it myself. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I guess that's pretty much all I have. And unfortunately, okay. because of work I was so busy, I wasn't able to do any more internet research after looking at the film twice. So no, yeah. I apologize. That's all I have. Awesome. That's no, we got, I think we had a lot, so that's good. All right, so Ash, what are your final thoughts and your star rating for Psycho? Um, I love Hitchcock's work. I always, I grew up watching you know, Alfred Hitchcock presents and and stuff like that. Um, 
this feels like honestly if we, especially them using the same crew and everything it feels like uh like an extended episode or a couple of episodes slapped together um which doesn't detract from the film at all i i i love the movie uh the uh seeing this again after so long you know reminds me why I, you know it's stuck in my head you know way back when um mm-hmm. but yeah i i love the movie i thought it was really well done um Perkins is fantastic. Uh, can't you know? Can't state. Can't overstate that enough. Um, right. So uh, I give it three and a half out of four. All right, three and a half from Ash. And what about you, Mark? What are your final thoughts on your star rating for Psycho? Uh, I absolutely love the film uh, from beginning to end. Um, it's I think my second Hitchcock film after watching Rear Window last year. Um, I don't know why I'm not seeing his other films. Uh, I thought this was a masterpiece from start to end. I loved all the characters. Um, even knowing Norman being mother at the end, uh, I still loved the way he appeared on screen. I thought Perkins was he beyond my expectations. Mm-hmm. He was so charismatic to um a becoming a nervous and i guess a nervous nelly um starting to <laughs> lose this like this this side of him when he gets cornered uh you know he's he's trying to lie and claw to get out of the situation um i love the sets i love the house with its california gothic look to it um yeah i i I've become a big fan of the film. Uh, I give it four out of four stars. Awesome. So four from Mark. So yeah, so myself, I mean, Psycho is a masterpiece that deserves all the praise it's received over the years. Um, It has such a profound impact. It had such a profound impact on the horror genre that we still see today. Uh, Anthony Perkins is absolutely perfect as Norman Bates and Janet Lee does such a great job showing us her inner monologue without ever overacting or feeling fake at all. Hitchcock displays an awesome amount of talent behind the camera, finding incredible shots that go down of some of my favorite I've ever seen. And his use of lighting is worthy of an award itself. The, the moments that are here would not become the iconic moments that we're still talking about 58 years later if it weren't for his genius behind the camera. The use of music adds to the tension that Hitchcock's going for and is iconic in its own right. Um, the idea behind this film is fascinating and I cannot wait to see where things go from here. The only slightly negative things I have to say about Psycho only exist because it's that super rare instance where I'm familiar with the source novel. Um, but I wouldn't hold that against the film at all because it it does a, a great job fitting in as much as it can in a way that works on film versus uh in a novel so that said psycho's excellent which is why i'm giving it four out of four stars which means we mark this one down as another one that ash and ash alone fucked up kept out of the cinefessions hall of fame that's right bitches (laughs) all me (laughs) keeping it elite and don't you forget it can't you get any eliter horror wise with psycho i don't think so i don't think so but hey That's the way it goes. All right. So, and just like that, we'll call episode one of our complete Psycho Arc completed. Join us next Monday, April 30th for our review of Psycho 2 from 1983, 23 years later. And remember, it should, man. I'm excited. 
Uh, and remember, for at least this arc and the next arc, we are just doing our week in media segment and our main review for the week to try and keep the episodes a little uh, leaner and meaner, uh, both for ourselves and for our, our weekly listeners out there. And if there's something you'd like to suggest for this spot for the future, we'd love to hear about it. Like we said last week, the only way we can make any changes you might like to see is if you reach out to us. And we like to make those lines of communication as accessible as possible. So you can reach out to us by finding us uh, at Cinefessions on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. You can email us at contact at Cinefessions.com. Or you can even give, even give us a call at one three zero two four four eight talk So we offer up plenty of ways to get in touch with us. So please feel free to reach out and let your opinions be heard. Do not be shy. We love talking with you guys. Um, and then another reminder, if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, or wherever else it is that you might be listening to us. Those positive reviews help us reach a larger audience. So we really appreciate that you taking the time to leave us those reviews and telling your friends about the show. And Ash, remind our listeners where else they can find you online. I hide and repost a lot of shit on Twitter and <laughs> Tumblr under D-H-G-F-A-S-H-E. Excellent. And what about you, Mark? You can find me on Instagram and on Letterboxd at mnadu 2 and on Twitter at Mark underscore Nadu. That's M-A-R-C underscore N-A-D-E-A-U. Excellent. And you can find me on my personal Twitter feed at uh, and on Letterboxd under Simon1. That's P-S-Y-M-I-N-1. All right. Ash, Mark, thank you, gents, for joining me this evening. I had a blast talking about Psycho. Yeah, me too. All right. So we want to say thank you to everyone for listening to episode 127 of the Cinefessions podcast. And remember, in film, we trust. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>